Welcome to Kurosawa Worth Watching, where we're watching a Kurosawa film and then the films that it inspired. Today, we're watching the very Rashomon-inspired 1996 film, Courage Under Fire. I'm your host, and I just want to say that when our podcast came under fire, I wanted to shoot it out, but my cowardly co-host wanted to run away and call for help. I want to do that in every episode, though. <laughs> my co-host is Guy, who got a purple heart for getting a shell fragment in his eye. An eggshell fragment, that is. <laughs> Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. So do you know the eggshell fragment reference? No, but it did remind me of the time I got a pin in my eye. That's <laughs> a pin? <laughs> neither here nor there. Yeah, I was. I don't know what I was doing, trying to pop a blackhead or picking my teeth or something, and it was one of those one in a million things where it just uh, slipped and popped right up into my eye and stuck there. So wow! <laughs> Fortunately, uh, there was no lasting damage. I had a little red in my eye for a few days, but that was <laughs> well. Glad you survived. So actually, yeah, the reference is to Mash. So um, do you remember back in the way back when we were younger and Mash was a big deal? Oh yeah, Alan Alda and all those guys. Frank was like the evil guy, right? I think it was Frank. Frank uh, Burns, there were a yeah. Of, yeah, Frank. There were a couple different evil guys over time, but one of those Frank was Burns. Winchester he, too, I think. He once uh, got, you know, he submitted and got a purple heart for getting a shell fragment in his eye, but it was actually a, an eggshell fragment. <laughs> so, <laughs> Very uh, but, good. You know, Matt. It's interesting. MASH is one of those series, like, everyone, you know, every once in a while there's, like, let's say an author who's, like, a world best-selling author or a TV show that's, like, the biggest thing on the planet. And then a few decades later, nobody remembers anything about that person or that series, right? And I feel like MASH was that way. Mm -hmm. When we were kids, MASH was huge. It was the biggest thing on the planet. And I don't think anybody now would know anything about it, <laughs> You know, it's funny you mention that because people at work just the other day were talking about MASH, although uh, <laughs> they were they were more people in my age group. So yeah, I don't know how many of the how many of the younger crowd remember it. But yeah, I never watched it regularly. It was just something that would be on the TV sometimes, and so I'd catch a little bit of it. So some context for this movie. It's another one, like the other ones in this category we've had, that has quite a cast, some people who weren't known at the time. So we have Denzel Washington, uh, Meg Ryan, who I think was probably pretty big when this came out, Lou Diamond Phillips. Now, I feel bad because he was like he was always on the cusp of being a big star or something, but I don't think he ever really totally broke out, but he has a huge part hmm. in this movie. Michael Moriarty. Now, if you remember him, he played a big part on Law and Order originally. He had a great role in that where he was uh, like the DA. Never, never watched that. Uh, He's the general in this, Yeah, right? yeah. And he went through, he as a person went through this whole political change and became kind of extreme and and anyway, that's <laughs> an interesting story. Mm. But he's a really good actor. Uh, Scott Glenn, who I love him whenever he shows up and stuff. Now, what was he in this? Oh, he, he's the uh, he's the reporter. Oh, okay. He's Gardner. Yeah, he All has right. that very distinctive kind of lined face, right? Yeah, he has that kind of craggy, yeah. Something he was great in, if you've never seen it, it it's another one we should visit, was uh, the first season of Daredevil. Hmm, I saw a few episodes of that. He played uh, Stick, who was 
the guy who sort of trained uh, Daredevil and all that. And he had a great role. It was really good. Mm. Um, very acerbic. But, yeah, he just shows up in everything. And he's always, he's just one of those guys who always delivers and is great in whatever he's in. Uh. We have a very early role by Matt Damon, <laughs> probably one of his first. I, I didn't look up, like, where yeah, it was. He seems pretty young in this. And then Bronson Pinchot, who I remember, with, again, maybe like Lou Diamond Phillips, was supposed to be kind of a big deal. I don't know if it ever was. But he's the he's the White House representative who's running around. Yeah. I think it's pronounced Pinchot, actually, and I don't know how I know that. I think there was like an old TV Guide article or something <laughs> that mentioned it. Yeah, I'm stinking but, with uh, uh, Pinchot. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> but he's... Uh, yeah, he he is the White House guy in this, mm. and he was, if I remember right, he was Balky and Perfect Strangers, which was mm. you know an old sitcom from the nineties, maybe. <laughs> Never maybe watched that 80s, one. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, so this was directed by Edward Zwick, who in nineteen eighty nine directed the film Glory, which really kind of put Denzel Washington on the map. I mean, he what Denzel had done other stuff. And I had seen him in the TV series St. Elsewhere, which is a pretty amazing TV series. But Glory really, you know, I, th- I think he won awards or almost won awards or whatever, and it really put him on the map. And so this is them coming back together. And hmm. Zwick was also the co-creator of the series 30-something, which was a huge series to me back when it came on. Again, it's one no one ever thinks about or talks about anymore, but it was uh, really good. And Zwick also directed The Last Samurai with Tom Cruise, along with many other things. And I've heard that's a good film, so it might be worth checking out at some point. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen 30-something either, but I remember the I remember the title from whenever it was on. <laughs> that's about all I know about it. Yeah, it was about a bunch of people who were 30-something trying to make their way through life. You know, it was Essentially, it was kind of friends before friends, right, uh, with somewhat older mm. people. Then we come to this movie, which is based on the Iraq War. Although I will say, I think it's fair to say, they use the the original Iraq War, not the second one after 9-11, but the one before that, <laughs> hmm. as the background. But it really is just background. I mean, it's it's the movie has nothing to do with the Iraq War, right? It was just a convenient war to use for this story. Yeah, yeah, this could have uh, could have taken place in many different conflicts, you know, the story. Yeah, we don't get this. to know any Iraqis or anything. They're all just anonymous bad people to be shot. <laughs> so. Yeah. Okay, well, with that, we'll head into... <laughs> with that, we'll head into Courage <laughs> Under Fire. I, I have to, I have to admit... I, the the title of this film, I cannot remember it. Over and over again, I have to look it up. It just, it just goes through my head, and I can't remember it. I've had a similar reaction. It's just, I've heard the phrase courage under fire many times. I just uh, can't get it to stick with this movie <laughs> for some reason. With that uh, promising note, we'll head into the movie. <laughs> All right. Well, it starts off with the opening credits and uh, some video from the uh, from the Desert War in Iraq. It's uh, some night vision video. You know, lots of uh, tracer bullets and missiles and stuff, and infrared video. And buildings are blowing up and mm. attacks on Baghdad. We get a 
voiceover from Bush the Elder uh, making some stirring speech. Uh, we get another guy referring to the mother of all battles, and I think this is the man who came to be known as Baghdad Bob. I'm not <laughs> sure, but uh, he, he was the guy who stood in Baghdad and said uh, the Americans were about almost defeated when the American tanks were rolling into the city. You know, so. <laughs> right, literally, literally, while he was saying this on camera, you could see the tanks behind him coming in. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was the original uh, mostly peaceful protest or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so after all the video of the war has set the stage, we see uh, Colonel Serling, and that's Denzel Washington. Uh, he's addressing his men, getting them ready to go off and do some tank driving. He leads them in a group prayer. And I thought this was interesting. I mean, it doesn't really come up much later in the movie, but Denzel Washington himself is very religious, and I've learned about this kind of recently. Yeah, I think it's it's a huge, huge part of his life. Uh, so it's sort of interesting to see this. I almost wonder if he wanted this to be put in here. It's like I say, it doesn't. It's not in any of the rest of the film. There's no religion stuff at all. Only in mm. the beginning here. But then we have this weird yeah. thing where he ends the prayer and then he says, let's kill them all. <laughs> I was like, well, okay. <laughs> yeah, well, that is an old time honored saying, kill them all and let God sort them out. So uh, <laughs> probably implying the God sort them out part. Mm. So he sends his men out to their tanks. There's one man who lingers behind. He's tapping his fingers on the side of one of the tanks. Uh, his, this man is Boiler. He looks he looks a little bit nervous or antsy. Uh, uh, and Serling asks him if he's okay, and he says yeah. And he he cheers up. He he doesn't uh, he doesn't seem terribly terribly worried. Just sort of distracted. You know, he goes off to his tank. And we see a see a whole line of several tanks lined up side by side. They're going to advance together, and the colonel tells them to move out, and they move out. Yeah, and I noticed here they don't make a big deal out of it, but in the background you have all these sort of burning oil deposits. And if you know the history of the original Iraq War, um, Saddam's forces set all these oil wells on fire to keep them from being able to take the oil um, so oh, you yeah. have these in the background, yeah. So the man that we just saw who was tapping his fingers, Boiler, he radios to ask if he can try a different route, and the colonel approves. He's still going to be going in the same direction as the rest of them. He's just going to go a little little off course. Colonel says, okay. And eventually the colonel's gunner spots a valid target, and uh, they blow it up, and they have a brief celebration. And then the colonel tells them to quiet down and get back to shooting things. <laughs> so they blow up several other targets in quick succession. Then they have to mow down some Iraqi ground troops with the tank's machine guns. And the Iraqis who don't get mowed down uh, end up surrendering. You know, They put their hands over their yeah, and this is realistic. My understanding is that just massive amounts of Iraqis immediately surrendered. Right? They just they knew they were overwhelmed mm -hmm. and they didn't want to be shot. And yeah, right. So uh, Boiler uh, is on the radio again. He's encountered some landmines, so he's going to reroute again to get around them. 
Then, in the midst of all the fighting, the U.S. forces lose a tank. No one saw where the where the shot came from, but the tank's gone. So now everybody's a little more worried and antsy than they were. The colonel's gunner spots a new target, but he isn't certain if it's a valid target. But after a moment of debating with the colonel, the gunner suddenly says it just fired on them. So the colonel approves him to return fire. He blows it up. And then a message comes through from the general on the radio and says they just hit a friendly. That was mm. Boylan. Mm. So that's a very, uh, one of the most sobering moments in the movie, I think, because your gut just kind of sinks. And, and you knew it was coming as soon as, as soon as the guy and the colonel are first arguing about whether or not he's sure that he is. The right. You know, and also, you know it's coming. Denzel Washington freezes up at this point, right? And he knows he's just killed somebody mm-hmm. and they have other people to deal with and other situations, but he freezes for a moment. So at dawn, the next day after all this action, we see a medic chopper landing. The gunner who shot Boylan's tank is talking to the colonel who gave the order to go ahead and do it. Uh, the gunner's miserable, but the colonel tries to reassure him. He uh, he says that he, Colonel Sterling, gave the order to fire. So he, he and the gunner are in the in the same boat. Then we, we're in a little office where there's a tiny table with uh, Sterling sitting on one side of it and uh, a man in the dress, a dress uniform sitting on the other side. And he seems to be kind of subtly coaching him, uh, you know, sort of, giving him the right answers to say, you know, he'll say like, uh, well, under the circumstances, there was no way to tell the difference, right? Serling reluctantly agrees that, yeah, I guess there there really wasn't. I mean, he originally says we should have been able to tell the difference, right? And then he sort of lets himself mm-hmm. get talked into the idea that they can't couldn't yeah. have told the difference. Right. In the colonel's office, then, uh, he's uh, writing a letter on an old Macintosh. This was, what, 96, 95? <laughs> of course, like you know, and I used to work at Apple and all that. I, it cracks me up looking at the UI and seeing exactly when that was. It was very early. In fact, it was one of the very early um, – they keep showing him using it – one of the very early Mac laptops. And there's this weird history where Apple was really not popular and was, you know, in trouble – and they put out the first kind of serious laptop, and nobody cared that it was Apple, but especially all the executives and everything. It was so cool to have that everybody bought this, you know, Mac laptop. But Apple mm. screwed it up and didn't understand. Anyway, it's a whole long story, but let's <laughs> just <laughs> uh, eventually uh, Steve Jobs came back to Apple, and I came back with him, and uh, we Steve and I fixed Apple. <laughs> <laughs> but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> so he's writing a letter on this old Mac to Boiler's parents. And he gets a phone call. It's a Washington Post reporter named Gardner. We don't get to hear Gardner's questions, but we do hear Serling say that he has no comment. So we can we can assume that this is about uh, Boiler's death. Then we're in the general's office. Then the general and Colonel Serling do a little walk and talk. They leave the office and walk down the hall. The general reassures Colonel Serling that no one's going to hang him out to dry. Colonel doesn't seem so worried about being out to dry, though. He's more worried about uh, Boiler's 
parents uh, uh, getting the truth or as much of the truth as the army will let him tell them. But uh, but the general assumes that he's worried about what's going to happen to him. The general talks about a White House publicity stunt. This is going to be awarding the Medal of Honor to a Captain Walden who died during a rescue of a crashed Black Hawk helicopter. And Serling is going to be the one to investigate. He thinks it's going to be mostly a rubber stamp investigation, just to make sure all the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted. So then we're in a small, small room where uh, a small group of people was gathered, our military people, and a man named Bruno, who's Bronson Pinchout, he's there, and he's the White House representative, and he's he's amusingly uh, sleazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, this is great, you know, it's a woman, we're going to give her the, you know, the medal, I mean, it's very obviously kind of a... Yeah, there won't yeah. be a dry eye in the house. Yeah. <laughs> So the other people in the room are the surviving crew of the crashed Black Hawk, and they tell their story of what happened. They heard a Huey helicopter coming in after they crashed. It flew over them, and the Iraqis started shooting at the Huey. Uh, it circled around the Iraqis' little camp, and uh, it dropped something big on the Iraqi tank. These guys don't know what it was that it dropped, but whatever it was, it blew up the tank real good. And then uh, the copter took some shots right after doing that, and it went down. It went down between the Blackhawk and the Iraqis. So from that point forward, the Huey crew was taking most of the fire from the Iraqis. The next morning, these guys go on to say, a big rescue team came. There was an A-10 Thunderbolt, and there were other, <laughs> other vehicle helicopters. And that morning, after the sun had risen, they they heard the Huey crew firing an M-16, which ends up, you know, it, here it doesn't seem that significant, but it ends up being a key point throughout the invest, investigation that ensues. Yeah, when they talk about this, one of the guys says, you, you can never mistake an M-16, it doesn't sound like anything else, and at least two of them are very mm. confident that there was an M-16 firing. As you say, it's kind of... Weird, but it ends up being important. <laughs> yeah. And when we see Serling later on listening to his tapes of his interviews, uh, he tends to focus on the parts where people are mentioning the M-16. <laughs> so the the guys say that the U.S. forces dropped napalm on the two helicopters once their crews were evacuated. The captain who had died was with the helicopter, with the Huey that went down, but, but she was already dead by that time. It wasn't the napalm that killed her. So Bruno and Colonel Serling, the interview's over. Bruno and Serling leave the room, and they're talking. And Serling opens her dossier and finds out the captain was a woman. He, had, he hadn't realized to this point. Uh, and she's the first woman to be nominated for a Medal of Honor in combat, which... I think I think that's kind of you know I had the sense throughout this movie that there was, you know I've I've joked before about uh, if you want to send a message call Western Union, <laughs> and that I had yeah. a feeling all through this movie that I'm being sent messages somehow, but oh, I yeah. I had trouble pinpointing what messages I'm supposed to be embiggened by in this <laughs> in this story, and uh, I think it may have been just something about uh 
women being fit for combat. At least that's part of the message we're supposed yeah, to Yeah, and the funny this. thing here is that this is not accurate. She's not the first. In fact, the first woman was from the Civil War. So, <laughs> ah. <laughs> yeah, um, which this is the kind of thing where I'd say I understand they're trying to, you know, they want to make a big deal in the movie. This is the first woman to receive. But wouldn't it be more interesting if they had actually talked about the woman in the Civil War? Who had received, mm-hmm. you know, this instead of pretending that, that you know, this is the first woman. But okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I wasn't aware of that. That's interesting. Huh. But, yeah, I think that's that's part of the message of the movie is that uh, women can be in combat, too. So, uh, which, I mean, yeah, they women can fight, that's for sure. They can do all kinds of things with weapons. Hmm. <laughs> Bruno is very enthusiastic about the optics of the award ceremony. He doesn't use that word, but that's a word that uh, we hear more and more nowadays for uh, <laughs> referring to the uh, the way something looks rather than the substance of it. Uh, and this is where he says, you know, there won't be a dry eye in the house. Mm-hmm. And Serling seems put off by that. He's, uh, you know, he, he detects the sort of mercenary attitude that Bruno has, so he's kind of cold when they part ways. Then we're at dinner with the colonel's family in his home. The colonel's lost in thought at the dinner table. He's picturing a man burning alive inside a tank, uh, probably a boiler. Gardner calls again during dinner. It's his wife who picks up the phone, and Serling goes to the phone. He picks up the handset, doesn't even listen to it or talk into it. He just slams it back down in the cradle and goes back to the table. After dinner, Serling's alone in one of the rooms of the house, and uh, he drinks an airplane bottle of scotch, <laughs> um, which, uh, I don't know, to me, this does not seem indicative of a drinking problem, but <laughs> well, maybe if he Yeah, is. I wanted to say, so one of the themes that will be developed in here is that he has a drinking problem, and as you say, they're showing it by him doing this, and both by the whole idea of, oh, he has these airplane bottles of you know, booze, and that's how he's being an alcoholic. And when he acts drunk later, it's like, I'm not sure Denzel Washington has ever been drunk. <laughs> because he does, <laughs> you know, not to say I understand this, but I'm just saying. <laughs> uh, I think he's acting like somebody who's heard about people being drunk, not actually someone who's experienced it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's 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 seen other actors portray drunk people. <laughs> yeah, Tom Cruise has that same problem, right? I mean, I don't think Tom Cruise drinks, and so he, he like in uh, the uh, A Few Good Men, he had to act drunk, and it was just like, oh, here's a guy acting drunk. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the wife enters the room, and she stares at him for a moment or two, doesn't say anything, uh, and I think, you know, I didn't know. Noted, but I think this is after he's already finished the scotch, so she doesn't even, she can probably (laughs) smell it on him, though. So he's going around gathering his gear. He's going to Fort Hood for his investigation, he tells her. He says he'll be a couple days, but she observes that he's got, like, eight T-shirts packed and, you know, a week's worth of socks and so on. Uh, So he'll be a couple days, but could be longer, he says, and he's packing for longer. She seems concerned, and he seems very unemotional, kind of distant. So we've got uh, 
We've got intimations of a drinking problem and uh, marit- marital difficulties yeah. and uh, all kinds of and, stuff. And this whole you know family and marital thing is a big thread throughout it. But in my part of it, I even left chunks of it out because honestly, it just it it's so pat. It's just so you know <laughs> nothing about yeah. it felt real to me, and so I just I couldn't pay too much attention to it. Everything from even you know. Even though some of those scenes were compelling, the whole thing about, oh, we start out and he accidentally kills somebody on his own thing, and then it's going to be this movie about this. And it's like, uh, okay. <laughs> you know, just, uh, uh, yeah, I have a lot of problems with all that. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it'll be interesting to get to the uh, the worth watching assessment. <laughs> they have some, uh, I have some, some thoughts, but... Uh, I'll be looking forward to see if you get it right. <laughs> <laughs> Next, he's on a plane, and uh, he's reading uh, reading the dossier on uh, Captain Walden, and there's reviews from her superiors in there who are praising her very highly. I mean, about as highly as you can praise somebody. Talking about uh, her loyalty and, you know, focus, dedication, and all that. And he goes to interview the first guy, whose name I didn't actually catch, but he's the guy who uh, who got hit right at the beginning of the whole downing of the of the Huey. His wife, it turns out, did not like the captain. She <laughs> she says she was so butch, <laughs> and uh, she didn't like that she was a pushy lady. I guess. So, well, uh, the way I would take this, uh, I don't know, but it. I mean, she was not a lesbian, but this is sort of implying that she was a lesbian or something, or that's why she didn't like her, mm, right? Because yeah, Bush kind of refers yeah, to Yeah, there lesbian. could be that, too. Yeah. She could be reacting to the potential aspect. Although, we do find out that she has an ex-husband. Or- yeah, she has a husband and a kid, so she's not a lesbian, but I think that's how she's kind of being treated not, here, yeah. Not entirely a lesbian. We don't, <laughs> we don't know all the details. But yeah, his his wife didn't like her, and he responds that she gave her life for those men. Mm-hmm. So that kind of shuts her up. And we get a flashback. The Blackhawk is already downed, and the Huey's flying overhead, and it starts taking fire from the Iraqis. This is stuff that we already knew. Yeah, because we uh, we got the interview in the mm-hmm. with the, the guys from the Blackhawk crew. Yeah, basically every story we hear is retelling this, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, which is very Rashomon-esque in a way. <laughs> yeah. Although there is a key a key difference that we'll come to later mm-hmm. on, but uh, but yeah, so far so Rashomon. The helicopter circles around the captain. Now we find out more about what that big thing that was dropped in the Iraqi tank was. It's a auxiliary fuel barrel that's just standing there in the back of the chopper where all the guys are gathered. The captain asks them to de- detach this auxiliary fuel barrel and also to get her a flare gun. So they drop this fuel barrel on the tank, and after it bursts open, the captain ignites it with a flare gun. So a, a pretty pretty skillful operation. They both mm-hmm. have to get the fuel in the right place and uh, and hit it to light it up. And that does blow up the tank, but uh, but in the process, as we already knew, the copter got hit. It goes down. And Hilario, who's Matt Damon's character, he calls in the Mayday. And he's, uh, 
Uh, he's very urgent about it. It's not a calm mayday. It's a panicked-sounding mayday. So then we go to a bar. We see Serling sitting at the counter of a bar, and the guy sitting next to him at the counter strikes up a conversation. Turns out he was also in the military. And furthermore, it turns out that it's Gardner, the Washington Post reporter who's been hounding Serling. And when Serling finds out who he is, he leaves. Then we're on a plane or going back and forth between a hotel to a plane to another hotel. Hmm. Uh, Serling's reviewing his recordings, uh, and this is where we hear a little bit of the uh, you know, rehash of the talk about the M-16. And he has nightmares, you know, the burning man in the tank, the boiler. So he wakes up from his nightmares. He uh, pulls out one of his airplane bottles. He pours out a bit into a glass, and then he just decides to howl with it and just pours the rest directly <laughs> down his throat, and then drinks the last few drops out of the glass that he had started pouring into. Then we're at a military base. Serling goes into the base pharmacy, uh, where Matt Damon, who is Ilario, is at work. He's, he's the pharmacist there. Serling asks him for some aspirin, which is dealing with the after-effects of his airplane bottle of scotch. And then they go out to the pool for an interview. Yeah, I got to say, and I I didn't read anything about this, but Matt Damon, when he was in the whole military thing and on the helicopter, he looks kind of the way you would normally think of Matt Damon looking. But now, later, he is extremely thin and his face is very thin. I have to assume he intentionally lost a bunch of weight. And as we'll see story-wise, I mean... You know, there's a reason for that, but he he really doesn't look like your typical Matt Damon here. <laughs> yeah, he looks kind of unhealthy in these yeah. scenes, and that probably so some makeup probably helped. Yeah, a lot I think with that, that was part too, of it too. But yeah, uh, but yeah it's um, he he does not uh, look well in these scenes. So Lario says before before this day that they're talking about when the Huey went down, he had never been in combat. He'd been with the captain. For two years, been working with her, but he had never been in combat. Uh, and the flashback begins with the Huey going down. And now this is something um, that, well, I don't know if we had actually heard the captain's voice prior, but we see that she has a strong southern accent. It reminded mm-hmm. me of, uh, I haven't seen it in years, but for some reason it made me think of Clarice Starling in Silence <laughs> of the Lambs. So, you know, I guess... Meg Ryan was uh, was bucking for an Oscar with mm-hmm. her southern accent. And uh, the Iraqis are shooting at them. And Monfries, Lou Diamond Phillips, he uh, he shoots at them. Now, this is after they've crashed, remember. this is He's hidden behind a rock. He's got a big weapon that's called a saw. It's like a, some kind of machine gun thing. And he's shooting at the Iraqis. Uh, I guess it'll be covering fire type thing while, uh, or suppressing fire, maybe. I don't know. Some kind of fire. <laughs> while the captain and Lario are in the copter gathering goods like helmets and Kevlar and so forth. And then at night, we see the, uh, the captain and Monfries talking uh, when an Iraqi pops up on the top of a rock nearby, and the captain shoots him uh, almost instantly. So there's a little bit of more firing, uh, but it turns out the Iraqis were really just probing their position. It's not a full-on assault. The Iraqis leave, but in the process, 
while they were there, they managed to do some damage. Altemeyer, one of the other guys, he was shot in the air. Monfries got hit, and the captain is hit, and she's she's gut shot. She's badly hit. Mm-hmm. We come back to the present for for a moment. Hilario talks about how he likes to come to the pool, and he mentions he likes to watch the kids, which maybe maybe this was just a more innocent time in <laughs> this movie, but practically anybody nowadays who hears him say that is probably the first thing in mm-hmm. their mind is going to be something nasty. He says it reminds him of his family's place at Calaveras Lake, which... Uh, is a seemingly pointless detail, but uh, maybe maybe not entirely. Mm. Uh, perhaps we'll hear more about Calaveras Lake later on. So we get more flashbacks as the interview continues. Uh, it's still nighttime. The captain sounds exhausted. Well, she, she's gut shot, so <laughs> it's understandable. And they review how much ammo is remaining. There's not a whole lot of ammo left at this point. There's some, but, but they're, they're getting low. Ilario says to Serling that the captain displayed no fear. She had no trouble making decisions. He says it was it was her style that whenever the pressure got heavier, she got calmer. And then we see in the flashback that it's daylight now. There's the ammo is lower still, but then the rescuers arrive, the the A ten and the helicopters. Altemeyer throws out a green smoke grenade to mark the landing zone for the rescuers. Everybody runs toward the green smoke except the captain. Uh, she stays behind, and she's gonna she's gonna try and shoot some covering fire for the rest of them while they're heading out to the landing zone. Hilario, Mad Demon, runs back to check on her, but she's been shot and she's dead. The rest evacuate on the chopper after Monfries explains to the pilot the captain is dead. And uh, now the down choppers are napalmed, as we saw before. And Hilario says he doesn't ever want to have to tell that story again. Serling asks about the M-16. He says the Black Hawk crew heard it in the morning, and Hilario... He seems confused, but not very convincingly. He seems like he might be trying to conceal something. And finally, he says they must have been wrong. Serling also asks him about a letter. I'm, I wasn't clear on how Serling found out about this letter, but... Hilario and Walden had, uh, had traded letters uh, in case one of them dies. The other one was to give the letter to the next of kin. And something related to this is multiple times in here, Ilario, both in his retelling and also in the actual flashbacks, calls her Karen. So we get mm-hmm. this sense that he knew her or they had a relationship or something that, you know, because you don't call your commanding officer by their first name, right? And he keeps doing that. So yeah. it just implies something. They don't explore it. It's just there. And I think that's fine. But w- when you combine that mm. with the fact that he had her letter to give to her parents if she died, it certainly implies, like, they were at least close. Yeah, yeah. It makes you wonder if they had some kind of romance going on. Uh, but also it uh, it does, you know, like he, he, had, he had said that they had, worked together for about two years so mm-hmm. that could be time to get to know somebody pretty well and then of course we know that she divorced her husband after only a year of marriage so mm-hmm. that's another mm-hmm. could be a little wrinkle in there um, 
But it'll all come to absolutely nothing as far as <laughs> that all goes. So next, Serling visits uh, Walden's parents. And her dad tells about how he bought her a helicopter ride at the fair. And ever since then, she wanted to fly helicopters. So then Walden's young daughter comes into the room. And as soon as she sees the colonel's uniform, she turns around and leaves. Uh, the father explains that the men who came to notify the family of Walden's death, they were dressed the same way, so the kid didn't want to hang around where the colonel is. Serling asks if he can see Ilario's letter, and Dad, he seems to know the name Ilario. He knows who Ilario was, but he knows nothing about any letter, so Serling says, oh, I guess I must have been mistaken. He knows that he wasn't mistaken. Mm -hmm. There's somebody's... Something's going on here. So Colonel Serling then parks outside his own house at a distance, and he watches his kids play in the yard. His wife comes to the car, and she says she's noticed him there for about 20 minutes, and he says he had been out there 15 minutes before she noticed him. And she complains about him sitting out here when he could be playing with his kids in the yard. She gets in the car, and she makes a quiet threat. Uh, if he doesn't get his act together, she's uh, she's going to leave eventually. She says, we'll be here for a while. So she, he's, he's not, he's not uh, really in Dutch, but, uh, but he's getting there if he doesn't shape up. Yeah, as I said, this whole thread, it just doesn't, I mean... It just feels so artificial to me. It's just so like, oh, we need to have him have his own thing. So, you know, whatever. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it does, does seem kind of uh, superfluous. <laughs> so in the general's office back at the military base, while he waits for the general, Serling's listening to his interview with Ilario in the part where Ilario uh, says that the Blackhawk guys must have been mistaken about the M-16. Serling raises his concerns to the general about all these discrepancies, and the general doesn't want to hear about it. He wants the report wrapped up, and he wants the White House off his back. Because, as we mentioned, the White House is really pushing for this this report to get approved so that they can give, give the captain the Medal of Honor posthumously. Serling complains about not being able to tell Boiler's parents the truth, uh, you know, this is the man who died because of his call. Because the investigators are taking their time, which is kind of ironic because Serling, as an investigator, hmm. is taking his time. The general sends his assistants away and has a little face-to-face, -face, you know, sort of calling, calling Serling on the carpet. He's offended that Serling seems to suspect not one but two cover-ups, the Walden... Uh, the Walden report that he's working on, but also the investigators covering what happened to Boiler. And General's a little offended by that. They're, they're old friends. They've, they've gone way back. The General adds, I know about the drinking. Hmm. So that's another one of those things that just sort of pops up. We don't know how he knows about it. Maybe he smells it on. We don't know. So at this point, as a first-time viewer, I'm wondering if, if this is like a, like in Capricorn One, where Hal Holbrook was the old friend of the astronauts <laughs> who, who ended up being a, a good deal more ruthless than than he initially seemed. 
Now, um, so one of get... the funky things about how we record this is that we will, even though we recorded that episode a long time ago, we won't have released it at the time this goes out, but people no. can look forward Spoiler to our Capricorn one. <laughs> uh, sorry, folks. <laughs> but anyway, at the end of the scene where we, we have some questions about the general, is he going to, is he going to do our Colonel dirty in the future? Time will tell. And then Sterling drives past a house <clears throat> after leaving the general's office. He drives past a house with boiler painted on the mailbox, which presumably is uh, either the parents or the, uh, the family of, uh, of the man who died because of the colonel's order. Mm-hmm. And that's the end of the first half. So we see an army unit doing a live fire training exercise, and Lou Diamond Phillips, Monfries, is an instructor yelling at people, which gives me flashbacks to Carry On Sergeant, one of our previous uh, episodes. <laughs> And ironically, Monfries is specifically concerned that you never leave a man behind, which might become significant later. <laughs> and then Monfries drives Serling in a Jeep, and he's telling him, you know, his version of the story. And he says he got involved with the chopper crew because the chopper crews had, or especially the medevac crews, had lots of time to play poker in between flights. And he knew how to make them lose poker by pretending to be interested in whatever they were interested in. And then that would distract them from their cards and he would win. Mm-hmm. And now Serling is interviewing Monfries in the dressing room while he gets dressed. And this is very much one of those law and order type scenes where, you know, the cops show up and they talk to you and the person you know, does their dishes or works out or whatever. And it's like no person in history who was getting questioned by the cops did their dishes or worked out. (laughs) It's just that (laughs) the thing is that the filmmakers want it to be visually interesting, right? So (laughs) instead of having them sitting in a room having a conversation, um, they have Monfries, you know, you know, getting dressed and then punching, punching bags and and that sort of thing. (laughs) It's just pretty funny. (laughs) And Monfries makes it clear that he knows that, you know, people in management want Walden to be a hero and she's guaranteed to get this medal. And he says he was asked to come along as an extra gun on that trip. He says, look, she was a major hero. She died tragically in the desert and the major wants her to get a medal. So she will. He doesn't want anything else to do with it. Mm. And now, and this is kind of a weird thing that Serling keeps focusing on. Serling asks Monfries, when did the M16 ammo run out? And this really seems to rattle Monfries, and he says he wouldn't know anything about that. It probably ran out first thing in the morning. And he says Altemeyer would know, as he was the one manning the M16. And, you know, while this will become important, it's one of those sort of weird things because it never makes any real sense why Sterling is so focused on this M16 thing. Like, you know, one or two guys thought they heard an M16 and he thinks it's extremely important. You know, it turns out to be important, but it's just important because that's what the plot wants it to be. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the the guys did say that it makes a very recognizable sound. Right. Uh, so, so I mean, you know, they, they established it fairly enough, I guess. <laughs> and then yeah. combined with, uh, 
Hilario, uh, having a different version of the story, you know, gets his, you know, made his ears perk up a little. So I've, you know, this, this is one of the things I would be less inclined to <laughs> gripe too much about. Okay. So Serling now confronts Monfries saying, you know, when the tank attacked them, he immediately wanted to go for altitude and call for support. He categorically denies this. And he says Serling doesn't want to know what really happened. He just wants Monfries to sign off so Walden gets her medal. So this is this, uh, you can't handle the truth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then for some reason, Monfries talks about what you're supposed to do if a round that you fire doesn't go off. You know, you wait and you point the gun in a safe direction. I think he refers to it as a hang fire. Yeah. And, you know, you, the reason you wait and point the gun in a safe direction is that it might be that, you know, it was slow to go off. And if you open up the gun at that point, it goes off in your face. This is actually true. If you're if you have a gun and it doesn't go off, don't you know immediately try to open it up. <laughs> so how long should you wait? Well, you should definitely point it somewhere else and give it a while. <laughs> he then tells Sterling that Sterling doesn't really want to know what happened out there. So Sterling takes all this as a threat, especially the you know gun going off in your face kind of thing. And he turns off the recorder he's been using and tells Monfries he'll have no problem sticking his head up his ass to find out what happened. <laughs> <laughs> and then Monfries, you know, starts to get more honest, at least his version of honest. And he says Walden was afraid. She was a fucking coward. And now we see his version of the story. And in his version, as they're dealing with the Iraqis who are attacking the downed helicopter they were trying to save, Monfries is bravely firing and insisting that they get closer so he can take them all out. And Walden is tentative. She says she doesn't know. They should go for altitude and get support, which, of course, is earlier what we heard that Monfries had said. But she decides to give Monfries one more pass, and then she's going to call in support. You know, she's very worried. And now it's Monfries's idea to do the fuel cell bomb. And he's even the one who, after they throw out the fuel, who fires the flare gun to set it off. So he, he's the hero in this whole situation. Mm. And now, uh, as Sterling is interviewing him, Monfries is now in the gym doing tightrope exercises. So. <laughs> Jump rope exercises. Yeah. And Monfries then says that that night, Walden and Ilario wouldn't shut up about wanting to be rescued. And he says, as if the army didn't have something else to do. And he says that Walden began crying and Ilario was comforting her. And then Monfries was like, look, I can hear the ragheads moving out there. You guys will just stop gabbing. And then an enemy shows up and Walden is scared. And Monfries bravely shoots the bad guys while Walden and Ilario cower behind cover. <laughs> and then Monfries says they're going away. It was just a probe. But it turns out that in the process, Walden was hit with a bullet. And Monfries now says that Ilario is scared of the dark and Walden wanted to surrender at first light. So, you know, he was the only brave person out there. <laughs> Everybody else was <laughs> very scared. Sterling then asks what happened during the evacuation. And it turns out Monfries was directing everything, telling everyone what to do, trying to get Walden to the chopper. But she was too scared to move. 
she felt like it wasn't safe. They were going to get shot trying to get to the shopper. And in fact, she was so afraid that she actually shoots at the ground in front of Monfries to keep him from evacuating her. And then there's an explosion and she's on the ground and Monfries leaves. And Sterling asks why Monfries didn't tell the earlier investigators this. And he says they already had the story they wanted. So he just told them what they wanted to hear. And now Serling gets Monfries to confirm that no one fired an M16 during this whole rescue period. And he's <laughs> very obsessed with this whole M16 thing. Yeah. Well, at this point, he's gotten three different three different stories about it, and two of the people seem kind of sketchy. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I can't blame him. <laughs> and now we switch to Serling having a late-night drunken relationship call to his wife here, and I left most of this out. Again, it's just sort of character development and stuff, but it doesn't really have anything to do with the plot. <laughs> yeah. Back in the hotel after this, the reporter Gartner sees him staggering to the elevator and intercepts him and sits him down and gets him some coffee. And by the way, a coffee just makes a drunk person a wide awake drunk person. It doesn't get rid of anything. <laughs> Anyway, Gardner offers to talk way, way off the record if need be. He says, Ranger's honor. So apparently he was a ranger. You know, they both have military history. And Serling now talks about how Boiler's parents were told that he died from any fire. And Serling had gone along with the story and even went to the funeral and told that story. So he's very upset about this. And Gardner tells him, he needs to get to sleep, and he can call Gartner anytime, on or off the record. Now, Serling is looking for Ilario, who he'd already talked to earlier, but Ilario can't be found, and apparently is absent without leave. And then we see Serling listening to his tape-recorded interview with Ilario, including stuff we didn't hear earlier about how hard it was for a woman to rise in the ranks and how she got calmer under pressure, and so we see these shots of Meg Ryan kind of, you know, getting celebrated and getting promotions and and that sort of thing. And then on a golf course, Serling is telling the general that there should be further investigation before the medal is awarded, and the general is not happy about this. Serling points out that Ilario is missing and Altamayar can't be found, and the general says they can't wait. Everyone wants this to happen. He's under incredible pressure from the White House. This is one little shining piece of something for people to believe in. And so the general tells him he needs to submit his report today, and Serling refuses. And the general says he could give him a direct order to submit it, and then he would have to. But Serling stands up to him, and the general tells his assistant to put another person on the report instead of Serling. And Serling says he's going to finish it anyway on his own time if he has to. So he's very invested. He's got a mystery to solve. <laughs> so now Serling meets the reporter Gartner in a park, and he asks the reporter to help him find Altamayer. Gartner wants to know what he gets out of it. And Serling says, well, there's a tape of everything that happened that night in El Bathra, you know, the when he had fired on the friendly tank. So he's offering that up to him. And now we have kind of a weird scene where in his hotel, Sterling is looking at a photo of Walden and her crew, and then he kind of fantasizes about her singing a song while she's with her daughter. <laughs> and then the reporter calls him and says he found Altamire, so <laughs> it took him about five minutes. 
And Sterling goes to a hospital, and Altemeyer is a patient, and he has abdominal cancer and other things. Kind of the the implication here is that, you know, after something like the Gulf War, we get what's called Gulf War syndrome, or with COVID, we get what's called mm. long COVID, right? Which is when there's a major social catastrophe, socially, we, we almost always associate certain bad health outcomes with it <laughs> and so they imply that in the movie and it's like oh he has stomach cancer and he has all this other stuff and it was probably because he was in the gulf war yeah and he's never awake very long because of all the pain he's suffering so sterling tries to talk to him but he's very out of it but he keeps saying there was something he and monfries didn't tell walden and something about fire but sterling just can't get it out of him it's all very vague and I think uh, Altemeyer sort of lapses into just repeating a phrase over and over again. I don't remember what it was, but it's something like, oh, Jesus, or mm. that, something where he's he's not happy about whatever he's thinking about <laughs> anyway. So now Sterling is back at the base where Monfries is, and he tells Monfries that he thinks he has something he needs to tell Sterling. But Monfries says, oh, I made some calls. I know you're off the inquiry. <laughs> It's one of those weird things, like how would he know to make calls and how would he know that he's been pulled <laughs> off the inquiry? But, you know, okay, whatever. And he wants to know what Sterling is doing here. And Sterling says Walden sent him. Monfrey starts to walk away. Then Sterling says he just left Altemeyer, which stops Monfries. And Sterling asks what happened out there that was so bad that Altemeyer is praying to die and Ilario is on the run. And now they're driving along. <laughs> Monfries is drinking and driving, literally taking a flask and drinking it while he's driving. And then he offers Serling a drink, and Serling refuses it. And of course, we've had this idea built up that Serling is, you know, an alcoholic based on his experiences. And Monfries says he can smell how much Serling wants this drink. Mm -hmm. And Serling takes the bottle and pours it out as they're driving along. And then he asks Monfries to tell him about the fire. And now Monfries pulls out a gun and puts it to Serling's neck. And he drives the car onto a train track and tells Serling that he knows what Serling did to the guys under his own command. And we hear a train coming. And Monfries says he's been a good soldier. And then he makes Serling get out of the car. And he then drives the car into the oncoming train and <laughs> commits suicide. Yeah, no, I, uh, <clears throat> I thought he was just going to stay parked on the tracks yeah. and wait for the train to hit him. But no, he actually turns and drives down the tracks right towards <laughs> the train. Mm -hmm. Points for style. Not leaving anything to chance. Yep. <laughs> now we see Serling listen. <laughs> so here's one of the weird movie things here. There's no consequences at all to him having been in the car with a guy who just committed suicide running into a train you know there's not a single sentence about it <laughs> you know it just it just disappears <laughs> and now serling is listening to the tape of his interview with lario and lario talks about you know a place his folks own on a lake that he goes out to and of course lario is now missing and so serling realizes he must be at that lake and so he finds him there I think it was called Calaveras Lake, mm. wasn't it? Yeah, that sounds I, right. Uh, I, I think that means skulls in Spanish, if <laughs> I remember right. So Sterling finds him sitting next to this lake. You know, it's a huge lake, so why he was able to find him, I don't know. But, you know, that's how the movie works. <laughs> and 
he says that the MPs found Ilario's stash in his locker, and he asks where he hides the needle tracks. And Ilario says he injects between his toes. This gets back to what I was saying, and I think you're right, both between probably him losing weight and the makeup, they made him look very gaunt, which kind of fit with this idea of him being this drug addict. Yeah. And now we get Ilario's new version of the story. So, you know, he told the version earlier, but he wasn't telling the whole truth. So the night after the chopper crashes, Monfries is going on about how they should make a run for it. You know, the enemy will have reinforcements at dawn. So Monfries is the one who is a coward. Altmeyer agrees with Monfries, but Walden refuses because Rady, a guy who, when they were downed, he was shot. Rady can't be moved and they have to protect him. That was the very first guy who got interviewed, who, uh, whose wife didn't like the captain. Okay. Yeah, I never connected, actually, to that. Okay. Um, Mon- you're right, because he said he, he basically he didn't know anything after that because he had just passed out. Yeah. Monfrey says, Rady will never make it. They should go. Walden refuses. And then Walden cries, and Monfries calls her out on it. And she says, forcefully, it's just tension, and he's an asshole. Yeah, and and this when she cries here, it's it's different than in the Monfrey's telling. You mm-hmm. know, she was much more uh, uh, much more scared in Monfrey's version, and thus it's just sort of like a reflex action. Well, and also that she's it's, upset yeah. about Rady and you know wanting to save him. Yeah. Oh yeah, but she seems in control in this yeah. in this telling. So Monfries then asks Ilario, what do you think? And Ilario says he doesn't know. So Monfries says this means it's a majority for them to leave and Walden is out of luck. And Walden says, truthfully, this isn't a democracy. <laughs> so we're staying with Brady. She's in <laughs> command. Altamire wants to surrender, but Walden refuses. But Monfries says she's not in command anymore since they've sort of outvoted her. And she tells him to give her the saw, the gun that he has. Uh, She says she can't stop him from running, but he's not going to take the firepower with him. He points the saw at her and says she's not going to take it away. And then she points her handgun at him and says, yes, she is. And she quotes Section 28J, Code of Military Justice, Mutiny, an Offense Punishable by Death. And they have a standoff. And then an enemy appears above Monfries. Walden shoots at him. Monfries thinks she's shooting at him, and he shoots her. Yeah, we've we've seen that same Iraqi on top of the rock in the other retellings. In one of them, in one of them, she just shot him, and the other Monfries was the hero and shot him. <laughs> in this one, she shoots him, and then Monfries shoots her. Mm. Then Monfries realizes he screwed up and helps them fight off the enemies. But you know, afterwards. Walden points her gun at Monfries, cocks it, and tells him to give her his weapon. Ilaria wants to treat her, and then she points a gun at him because he kind of sided with Monfries by saying he didn't know what he wanted to do. And she insists that they have to stay with Rady. And then, you know, because she's been hit and it's a long, stressful time, she's sort of falling asleep. And Monfries is standing right next to her while she's falling asleep. And when he thinks she's asleep, He tries to get his gun back, and she wakes up and points her gun at him. And then the Iraqis are attacking again, and Monfries begs for his weapon. Walden refused to give it to him. 
He says they'll save her and it'll all be over. She says, no, there's going to be a reckoning. He can count on it. But he takes his gun and uses it. And then they hear an incoming helicopter there to save them. And copters come in and start clearing out the bad guys. And then Altemeyer is fleeing to the chopper. And Walden insists that he take Rady with him. And she tells Ilario to give her the M16. And she now tells them to flee while she covers them. And she tells Ilario to come back for her with a stretcher. And she starts shooting the M16 at the enemy. And this is why the M16 turns out to be important, right? Is that she was, mm-hmm. in fact, not a coward. And she was trying to protect everyone else, uh, knowing that she was going to die. And she holds the enemy off while everyone else gets to the copter. And once they're on the copter, Monfries tells the copter pilot that Walden is dead, so they should leave. So she's not really dead, so this is really bad. <laughs> yeah. And Ilario doesn't speak up to contradict him. No, he just kind of stares at him but doesn't know what to say. And Altamayer actually tries to say that she's not dead, but he's so, you know, wounded that, you know, no one pays any attention to him. As the chopper leaves, jets now lay down napalm fire over the area, which, you know, both kills the enemies and ensures her death. Back at the river, Ilario says Monfries said that Walden would have court-martialed them, so... This is what they needed to do. And Ilario kind of makes an excuse. You know, she was probably killed by small arms fire before the napalm. And anyway, she never could have survived that stomach wound. <laughs> mm-hmm. And now Ilario pulls out the letter from Walden to her parents that he could never bear to actually send to her parents. And he gives it to Serling. Back in Washington, Serling is taken to the general's office the reporter Gartner is there, and now, you know, Gartner before this has been dressed in very normal clothing, but now he's very gussied up with, you know, tie and three-piece suit sort of thing. And he has some questions about El Bathra. The general says, well, we can talk about this, but, you know, I want to control, I want complete control over when all information about casualties is released. And Gartner says, unfortunately, they're going to be going public with a story based on a tape that he's acquired of all radio communications that night. So this is the tape that, you know, Sterling would have given him. And he wants the general to listen and then comment for the record. And we hear and see what we saw in the very first scene, but now it goes on longer. And so after they shot the friendly tank, we see that Sterling commanded that all tanks in their division turn on their lights because they, they've now been infiltrated. They don't know which tanks are the Iraqis in which are there. So he tells all their tanks to turn on their lights. And they are then able to see which tanks don't have their lights turned on, and he directs them to destroy them. So he was very clever, and he saved many lives by figuring out, you know, which tanks were actually Iraqi tanks. Hmm. And the general now agrees with Gartner that Serling acted heroically, And then he says, oh, and by the way, Sterling has been investigating the first woman up for a Medal of Honor, and he asks Sterling how that's going. And Sterling says, to honor a soldier like Karen Walden, they need to tell the truth, the whole cold, hard truth. And he hands his full report to the general. Outside the White House, we see the ceremony to award the medal for Walden, and there's a chair with Sterling's name on it, and it's empty, which seems rude. It turns out, (laughs) instead of attending this ceremony, 
He suited up and went to Baylor's parents to tell them what really happened that night. And he begs for their forgiveness for the lies that he and the army told. But he says he can't ask their forgiveness for what he actually did. The parents say this is a burden he's going to have to put down sometime. So they, they forgive him. And at the ceremony, Walden's little daughter receives her medal. Jets fly overhead. One peels off in that missing man formation. And then we hear a letter from Walden to her parents as Serling walks through the military cemetery to her grave. And her main concern was not, she knew she might die. Her main concern was not to let her crew down. Mm-hmm. And now Serling arrives at home, finally ready to rejoin his family. And he hugs his wife. And now <laughs> he remembers that at the end of that night where Boylan got killed, it was Walden in the medevac helicopter that took people out. And it's the end of the movie. Hmm. <laughs> okay. So I don't know. What do you, um, what's your overall reaction to the movie? <laughs> I mean, it's an interesting mystery, but did it need to be a two hour feature film? I don't know. It's, I mean, there's, it's just sort of a, relentlessly mopey movie there's i mean the the subject matter it's appropriate to that but it's not Mm. a fun movie to watch it's interesting (laughs) but it's not uh you know they're they're just there's nothing wrong with like you know the cinematography's good you know there's nothing that stands out as like oh that's cheesy or that's whatever i mean we've we have noticed some little plot conveniences and so forth that uh you know, little shortcuts and, but, uh, it's just, uh, I think this would have been more appropriate as an episode of an hour long TV series, <laughs> you know, like the mystery of the week type mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, yeah, the actors, the cast, as we discussed earlier, you know, the cast is very good. It's just, uh, didn't really, didn't really grab me. It's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it was interesting. I, I guess I don't regret watching it, but uh, whether I'd say it's worth watching for someone who hasn't seen it, I'd uh, say, no, if you want to watch a two-hour, one-hour TV show, then, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, <clears throat> this is one to watch. But, um, you know, it's not, uh, didn't didn't bowl me over, that's for sure. Yeah, I. it just feels like, it feels like a first draft where you haven't really challenged yourself and you haven't really, you know, changed anything up from expectations. And I think the way I think about it is we look at either the film Rashomon itself or the two other things we've watched there, you know, Usual Suspects and the X-Files episode, right? And when we have mm-hmm. our definition of worth watching, of would you pull someone down like to the couch to, to make them watch something because they hadn't seen it? I would absolutely show them Rashomon or Usual Suspects or the X-Files episode. I would not mm-hmm. show them this, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. That's... So, so for me, it is not worth watching because you would not pull someone down to the couch to watch this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, I try to take a more liberal interpretation <laughs> of worth watching, you know, as in is it at all worth watching? But, uh, but definitely it's not something I'm going to go to work tomorrow and tell people hey you gotta watch this movie you know right no it's uh you know if if it's 
if you're up late at night and it happens to be on your cable channel or whatever and you, nothing else looks good, then yeah, maybe, you know, but <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's not, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, amazing cast. Nobody does a bad job. There's no bad acting. There's just bad writing, in my opinion. Mm. And, you know, so I don't blame anyone but the director and the writers <laughs> for this. <laughs> um, okay, well, it might mm-hmm. be, uh, we, we may want to discuss, or maybe you were just getting to that, but, but how it relates to Rashomon mm. is probably something we should touch on. And for me, the, the very uh, significant difference is that Rashomon, we don't know, we don't know what happened still. I mean, any one of the people could have been telling the right story, or maybe, you know, there were parallel universes where the story happened differently to each one of them, or who knows? Uh, we, we never get resolution on that. Whereas in this movie, we come away with a very clear impression that the mystery is solved. We finally mm-hmm. got the right answer, even mm-hmm. though it took some getting to. So, so in that sense, it's different. But mm-hmm. uh, but leading up to that revelation, it's a Rashomon. Right, I agree. It is different stories, but and I mean, I think we can assume that the final story in Rashomon is probably the true one, but we don't. Absolutely no. We're here. We absolutely know that the final story is the true one. On Rashomon was the final one where they were like timidly fighting yeah, each other, yeah. and falling all over the. Place. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was. Uh, it was at least the most entertaining. One <laughs> yeah, kind of the most <laughs> realistic version, right? Well, there you go. We don't, you know, don't really think it's worth watching. Watch the Usual Suspects. Watch X Files. Watch Rashomon. <laughs> <laughs> if you really want to watch this one, you can. We're not going to stop you. It's not terrible. Again, no bad acting, but, you know, just TV movie of the week stuff. Yeah. Okay, well, next up, we're going to watch Predestination, an Ethan Hawke film, and see what we think of that. <laughs> And her dad tells about how he bought her a helicopter ride at the fair, and ever since then she wanted to fly helicopters. I got to say, her dad, uh, I believe, is the dad from Freaks and Geeks, if you recall that. It was really weird for me watching. Wasn't wasn't Joe Flaherty the dad in Freaks and Geeks? Well, am I wrong about who this was? Because he really looked like Well, I never saw it. I know Joe Flaherty had some role in it, but this guy wasn't Joe Flaherty. Okay, let me see. I'm going to look it up so then we can go from there. Because he sure looks like him if he's not him. Huh. Um, Joe Flaherty. It was him. In Um, this movie? In Freaks and Geeks. Now, let me see. Oh, in Freaks and Geeks. Okay. Okay. Uh, Let me see if he was in this. Uh, it looks like probably not. Okay, I'm probably wrong. But he sure looks like him. <laughs> <That's all>. uh, <laughs> okay. 
Well, I guess I'm just enough of a Joe Flaherty connoisseur that the thought never crossed my mind. <laughs> well, I'm cutting all that out, so uh, I don't know where we were, but <laughs> wherever we were, let's go back to it. <laughs>